It's a positive film. It has heroes and villains, and uh, that it essentially uh, is a fun movie to watch. It's been a long time since people have been able to go to the movies and see a sort of straightforward, wholesome, fun adventure. Well, it's a fantasy. It's not science fiction so much as it is space fantasy, and it's about people. It's about. It's finally about people and not finally about science. The story, when you actually put it into words, is only so much nonsense to hang a great visual experience onto. It's the stuff that fairy tales are made of. Sort of boiling down religion into a very basic concept: uh, the fact that there is some deity or some power or some force. That sort of controls our destiny,、uh, works for good and also works for evil. Marvelous, healthy innocence, great taste, wonderful to look at, full of guts, nothing unpleasant. I mean, people go bang bang and people fall over and dead, but you know, no horrors. A sort of wonderful freshness about it, kind of like a wonderful fresh air. It's got whatever you want it to be. It's a, it's pure entertainment. It's like a roller coaster ride, and it can be interpreted as long as you enjoy it, which is the intention. In order to get anything to happen, you have to take a certain amount of risk, and you have to sort of go into an area where you're not sure you're going to be able to pull it off. George is always known as an innovator.、Uh, here we go again. He's doing something new. He's doing something different. It certainly is a it's a risk it's a risky idea. Hello, welcome back to Generation Skywalker. This is Attack of the Clones across the stars and back again. We released this show on the anniversary of Attack of the Clones to celebrate. The Attack of the Clones.、Uh, we've got interviews behind the scenes, all sorts of footage coming up. I do recommend this as a, as an enhanced show. It's a bit of a feast as an enhanced. But what I will say is, some of the videos are a little bit grainy at times because this film was twenty years ago. Episode two takes place ten years after、uh, Episode one, and now Anakin is a Padawan learner, apprentice Jedi, and Obi Wan is his mentor. Padme finished her term as the Queen of Naboo and has gone on to become a senator. The movie is essentially a story about Anakin and Anakin's、uh, dealing with his emotions, the difficulty of his、uh, being torn between his duty and his emotional、uh, needs, which relate to、uh, Padme. Must be difficult having sworn your love to the Jedi, not being able to do the things you like. I'll be with the people that I love. Are you allowed to love? Thought that was forbidden for a Jedi. It's、uh, the beginning of the end of democracy in the Republic. We go to Camino, which is a very exotic, more fantastic science fictiony kind of planet. Very surreal. And we also go to Geonosis, which is a planet of、uh, insect-like creatures. 
in terms of the scope, visually, the amount of planets, the vehicles that have been designed for this, this is the most ambitious of all the various chapters that have been made already. This is back to the spirit of adventure, the excitement, uh, the drama. Everything is in this script that made people fall in love with the original Star Wars. Since episode one, he'll have been um, training Anakin heavily. Patience. Use the force. Think. Sorry, Master. They're like um, two old friends who've been together a long time and who spend too much time together. You know I don't like it when you do that. Sorry, Master. I forgot you don't like flying. Well, you've lost him. If you'll excuse me. I hate it when he does that. Obi-Wan Kenobi's worried. Anakin's a bit uh, headstrong and... Um, Overconfident. Boy has exceptional skills. But he still has much to learn, Master. His abilities have made him, well, arrogant. He loves Obi-Wan uh, because he is sort of a, a father figure for him. But at the same time, there still is that resistance because Anakin does want to break free of, of what he's doing right now. I'm ready for the trials, but he feels that I'm too unpredictable. He won't let me move on. She is now a senator of she had been the queen, but her reign ended, and the new queen asks her to stay and help out and be a senator, so she's still in the political scene. Do you have any idea who is behind this attack? We will find out who's trying to kill you, Padme. I promise you. Escort the senator back to Naboo. She'll be safer there. They have to travel together a lot because he's protecting her. Throughout the film, they're put in these very extreme settings because they're in hiding. You're making fun of me. Mm, no, no, I'd be much too frightened to tease a senator. <laughs> She really struggles with um, sort of the the career versus romance um, issue. You're starting to become a Jedi. I'm I'm a senator. We could keep it a secret. We'd be living a lie. I couldn't do that. Could you, Anakin? He understands that as a Jedi, he's not allowed to fall in love, even though he feels so passionately for Padme. It's that confusion uh, that that really causes him all of his anxiety. This one, obviously, we we kind of know what happens to Anakin. Um, we just don't know how and why. It's all Obi-Wan's fault. He's holding me back. You're not all powerful, Anakin. Well, I should be. Anakin's flaws, like all classic mythological heroes, are the flaws that everyone carries with them. The issues that he's confronting is that a, a good Jedi overcomes those flaws and um, kind of goes above the normal human tragedy that most people have to... Uh, experience. What is it? Pain. Suffering. Death, I fear. Anakin is starting to display some interesting characteristics that need to be watched closer. 
Although there had been some teaser trailers right back to November 2001, the first theatrical trailer debuted on March the 15th, 2002, attached to the release of Ice Age, and it also was released on the official Star Wars website the same day. It was just before dawn, they came out of nowhere. Do you have any idea who's behind this attack? We will find out who's trying to kill you, Padme. I promise you. Escort the senator back to Naboo. She'll be safer there. I do not like this idea of hiding. Sometimes we must do what is requested of us. Dangerous and disturbing this puzzle is. You're using her as bait. <gasps> I'm a Jedi. A Jedi? What do you know? Follow that speed up! <laughs> You went that way. This is a shortcut, I think. Stay away from the park, coupling. We decided to come and rescue you. Good job. A longer second theatrical trailer followed that trailer not long after, and in amongst all of these trailers was numerous teaser trailers, and the love story between Anakin and Padme was becoming clearer in all of them, none more so than the Forbidden Love teaser. It's a great pleasure to see you again, lady. It has been far too long, Master Kenobi. Annie? My goodness, you've grown. So have you. You've grown more beautiful, I mean. Just being around her again is intoxicating. Be mindful of your thoughts, Anakin. They betray you. You have made a commitment to the Jedi Order, a commitment not easily broken. Please don't look at me like that. Why not? It makes me feel uncomfortable. Sorry, my lady. Must be difficult having sworn your love to the Jedi. Not being able to do the things you like. I'll be with the people that I love. Are you allowed to love? Thought that was forbidden for a Jedi. Mm, no, I'd be much too frightened to tease the Senate. <laughs> we could keep it a secret. I'd be living a lie. I couldn't do that. Could you, Anakin? She's a politician, and they're not to be trusted. I've heard this lesson before. You haven't learned anything, Anakin. It's all Obi-Wan's fault. He's holding me back. You're not all powerful, Anakin. Well, I should be. Someday I will be the most powerful Jedi ever. The story of Forbidden Love was the main theme throughout the Attack of the Clones. On the DVD release of the Attack of the Clones, there was a love featurette. This piece gives so much more to the love story and why they focused on it in the way that they did. To understand the importance of that love story, we've opted to put this featurette in full here.
must be difficult having sworn your life to the Jedi. Not being able to do the things you like. I'll be with the people that I love. Episode two is George's first real um, romance movie. It's still got, you know, all the classic Star Wars elements. Got a lot of battles and stuff, but the story is really centered around this love story between Anakin Skywalker and Senator Amidala. In the earlier films, episodes four, five, and six, there's a there is a little kind of flirtation, but it's never carried very far. Obviously, Han Solo and 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 Leia fall in love with each other. You like me because I'm a scoundrel. There aren't enough scoundrels in your life. I happen to like nice men. Uh, but that isn't the sort of core of the story, and it takes place over three movies. This one, it's uh, a much more condensed. Uh, love story. There's still a lot of action and war. It's sort of a, a love story against the backdrop of a war. When George first began to speak to me about episode two, when George said to me, why don't you make a love theme? It's like the old Hollywood movies. It's introduced gradually when the lovers are reunited, not as lovers, but as acquaintances in the beginning of the film. Anakin has been in love with Padme ever since he was 10 years old. And he worshipped her when he was young. And now they're finally getting back together. You're sweating. Relax. I haven't seen her in ten years, Master. When he first sees Padme, um, his attraction changes from when we first saw their relationship and how it left. Uh, you know, it was, it was a much more childlike affection. Annie? My goodness, you've grown. So have you. Grown more beautiful, I mean. Well, for a senator, I mean. And he'll always be that little boy I knew on tattooing. Padme just thought of him as a little kid. So it's Padme adjusting to the fact that he's now a grown-up guy. Sometimes we must do what is requested of us. You've grown up. And all of a sudden he comes back and she's like, wow, you know, he's grown up into this handsome young Hayden Christensen. So their relationship really goes from this sort of her looking down on this younger guy to him sort of proving himself as a real force. You are, Annie! It is you! <laughs> a Jedi! What do you know? <laughs> Actually, the undercurrent of the whole love theme is, is very touching, very sweet, and it's, it's more like courtly love. You're making fun of me. Mm, no, no, I'd be much too frightened to tease a senator. <laughs> we have a much more romantic story, so that Padme's costumes are obviously more sultry in nature. As George sort of progressed with the script, he sort of realized more that he wanted to show a softer, sort of friendlier side to, to Padme, where she could be looking sexy and, and gorgeous and young and in skimpy clothes. I think the biggest difference is that shot him bit more skin in this one. This is my uh, sexed up version, I guess, of, of the queen. I got over the hump of 18, so I, I'm allowed to show tummy now, I guess. There's romance for, you know, the kids who love romance stories, young girls. Young girls will be in love with Hayden, and, you know, the guys are going to be excited because Anakin's character is exciting, Obi-Wan's character is exciting. Escort the senator back to Naboo. She'll be safer there. 
they have to travel together a lot because he's protecting her because someone's trying to assassinate her. Don't do anything without first consulting either myself or the council. Yes, master. He's constantly telling the Jedi Order that, that Anakin's not ready to be sent off on, a, on an assignment on his own. He's a, he says that his abilities have made him arrogant. Excuse me. I'm in charge of security here, milady. That's not a good thing to be, and it's dangerous. And then they don't listen to him. And we all know what happens in the end. Throughout the film, you know, they're put in these very extreme settings because they're in hiding uh, that really lend themselves to, you know, falling in love. And, and they're uh, spending a lot of time in uh, a lakeside palace or in, you know, grassy fields. And it's really conducive to two people finding uh, very passionate emotions for each other. So then they sort of have these encounters where they, they discuss their ideas and they discuss their, you know, lives and, and he's trying to show off to her all the time, you know, probably in ways that he's not allowed to, you know, using sort of his Jedi tricks. Padme is a very strong-willed person, you know, he's not so much attracted to the power that she holds in her political arenas, but rather uh, the power and strength that she holds within herself. She's uh, very beautiful and intelligent, and it would be easy for anyone, I think, to fall in love with her. Padme is attracted to Anakin mainly for his looks. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> um, he allows her to be a little less serious about herself and laugh a little and, you know, fall in love. The love story is a very classic love story of uh, forbidden love. Uh, two people who fall in love with each other when they really can't do that. We could keep it a secret. We'd be living a lie. I couldn't do that. Could you, Anakin? It's a star-crossed set of lovers, really, where the lovers are separated by class or by family, as they are in Romeo and Juliet, or by rank, as they are in episode two. Be mindful of your thoughts, Anakin. They betray you. You've made a commitment to the Jedi Order, a commitment not easily broken. He understands that as a Jedi, he's not allowed to fall in love, even though he feels so passionately for Padme, and it's this sort of, uh, these conflicting emotions. Well, there are Jedi rules, you know, and one of them is that you don't, you don't fall in love, and he breaks those rules. He feels very passionately about becoming a, a great Jedi, but at the same time, he, he feels so passionately for Padme, and he's, it's that confusion uh, that, that really causes him all of his anxiety. It's the same struggle for, for Padme. She, she's the, so the more mature one, the more rational one, the one that's not letting her emotions run away with her. It's really a struggle for her to say, you know, can I be selfish and fall in love myself when I have all these aspirations and all these things I need to accomplish? So it's the struggle to sort of maintain some sanity in the uh, overwhelming wave of chaos brought about by love. He's holding me back! We have a sense with Anakin that there's a dark side to him, and his dark side already clouds the relationship. He does have an edge. He's got a sort of a James Dean, sullen edge to him. She sees this sort of darkness to him, but obviously that's always intriguing. It's always like the bad boys. The anger is, is, a, is a product of his confusion. He's very passionate about it, the path that he wants to take as a Jedi. You know, he's very determined, and he feels like he's being held back. He wants 
to break free of that. But at the same time, uh, you know, he's found this love in his life, which takes him in a completely different direction. The idealistic, sunny aspect, hopeful aspect of what of what we feel, is balanced by the sense that uh, that experience gives us that these relationships never quite work out the way we idealize them, and something will happen to tilt it. If evil can love, then what is evil? If you know love is what makes you human, and then is someone who is evil human still? I mean, it, it just makes all the questions involving the film a lot more complex. Yeah, you know, they fall in love, and the struggle is whether they should allow this to happen to their lives, even though they know it's going to be very destructive. You know, in the end, they they do decide to give in to their emotions, and ultimately, they will suffer all the consequences of that. So this next clip is from Tech Live, who back in 2002 covered the world premiere of Attack of the Clones. We get to hear from George Lucas, Frank Oz, Ewan McGregor, Natalie Portman, as well as lots of chat about what people are expecting from this movie. It is the hot topic among Star Wars fans. Episode 2 opens Thursday, but the festivities are already underway. Premieres took place across the country last night. Our entertainment reporter Chris Kosach joins us live with the fanfare. Chris? Well, Star Wars stars spread out across the nation to attend charity world premieres in 11 cities. We had crews on the red carpets from coast to coast, and we begin in Los Angeles. The Man's Chinese Theater played host to the Hollywood premiere of Star Wars, Attack of the Clones. A slew of celebrities were on hand, including one of the baddest Jedis around, second only to Yoda. Playing the part wasn't hard for Samuel L. Jackson, even the work in front of the blue screen. I was a child and played in my room the same way. When I had when it was raining, when I fought things that were jumping out of the walls at me, it was the same thing. Still, it took some imagination. I was the guy standing there fighting a lot of things that weren't there. When I got to the film the first time, I actually saw everything they had to draw in front of me. Most times it looks like a guy who's standing there losing his mind. Working with the latest in filmmaking technology was a little tougher for co-star Ewan McGregor. There's no denying it. It's technically very difficult to act convincingly with nothing there, you know. It's kind of not what I'm used to doing, but then... That becomes the challenge, you know, that becomes your acting challenge. In New York, co-star Natalie Portman said those challenges are worth the rewards. I think I, I really love this movie. I think it's really exciting. There's really great action. There's amazing effects. Um, I mean, you've got two pretty hot guys running around with their lightsabers, so, and Yoda gets a kick-ass scene. This time around, Yoda is all you digital, something the voice behind the character Lord. is very proud of. You couldn't have done it uh, any other way this time, so uh, I'm just thrilled with what they did. And at the San Francisco premiere, creator George Lucas says Yoda is the single biggest accomplishment in episode two. Probably creating the digital Yoda. That was the hardest thing we had to do. But the digital lessons quickly. learned making the Phantom Menace paid off. Episode one was a training session for us. We learned, but we didn't have to add too much. We improved the technology we were using in one, but we didn't add to it. Lucasfilms is helping various children's organizations from around the country with charitable showings like this one today. This particular show, $500 a seat, 1,100 seats. You do the math.
we've decided it's much better to do charity premieres where uh, it can really benefit children rather than just have a big party for a bunch of Hollywood types. Now, the concept of fundraising premieres is not new to George Lucas. He seems to do this every three years with each new installment of the Star Wars saga. Michaela? And fans are pretty excited. I was at the L.A. premiere, and folks were just lining up just across the street to get a chance to look at Samuel Jackson and Ewan McGregor. Are they expecting Star Wars to surpass Spider-Man's opening of one, uh, 14, $114 million? Well, actually, this film, even though Spider-Man opened from coast to coast, and this one opens from coast to coast, it is in a smaller amount of cinemas. But then again, tickets have been sold out for the first few shows, and this is not opening on Friday. It's opening on Wednesday in select cities and opening up to more theaters come Friday. So my guess, yeah, it's going to probably be at least $100 million. That's my thought. Staying on the premieres in Australia, Ewan McGregor made a great comment regarding Yoda being in the main fight and not Obi-Wan. You know, we're in Australia shooting the film and I was turning the pages of the script and I got to the end and it says Yoda kicks Dooku's ass and I thought, <laughs> no, come on, how's that going to work? This clip shows a report from Global News who gets some reaction from the first moviegoers to see the film in North America. It was the best movie I've ever seen. Special effects was great. It showed more emotion. Jedi's uh, people started fighting each other, but I didn't get who won in the ending. Now, I don't know how these things work. I don't know what the protocol is, if you sign up for a film, uh, how you get to hear what the title of the film you're in actually is. But I don't imagine it's being told by a reporter. Anyway, here's Ewan learning for the first time the name of episode two. He gives an interesting response. I actually broke the news to Ewan McGregor, Obi-Wan Kenobi himself, about the new title of the upcoming Star Wars movie. Oh, what was, what was it? What was it? Attack of the Clones. Was it? Attack of the Clones. Is that real? Yes. What do you think about that? I don't know about that. <laughs> this next clip is Natalie Portman, pre-release of the film, obviously trying to sell the film to the public. I think, you know, it's really the type of film that you need to decompress. You need to go and escape and be exposed to real magic. And it's real cinematic magic above, you know, anything else, more than anything else. So it's really wonderful um, to go and sit in the theatre and just be have all this visual eye candy and also this, you know, really exciting, suspenseful storylines. You're just sitting there the whole time, just, you know, completely, uh, all your senses are just, you know, at, at their at their most heightened states. Roger Ebert and Richard Roper are film critics in the United States, and at the time of the release of The Attack of the Clones, they had their own film review show, with the pair of them often disagreeing on their opinions of the movies. This was very much the theme for when they reviewed The Attack of the Clones on the show back in 2002. It's all Obi-Wan's fault. He's holding me back. I'm not all powerful anymore. Well, I should be. Anakin Skywalker was only a boy as the hero of Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace, but now he's growing into young manhood in Episode Two, Attack of the Clones, and we can see early signs that he will eventually become the evil Darth Vader. Goodness but in this new Star Wars movie, he's a hero, assigned along with his mentor, a younger Obi-Wan Kenobi, to guard Senator Padme Amidala as she leads the Republic in its defense against the rebels. We need a system where the politicians sit down and discuss the problem, agree what's in the best interest of all the people, and then do it. That's exactly what we do. The, the trouble is that people don't always agree. Well, then they should be made to. 
Director George Lucas is an outspoken advocate of digital filmmaking, and the models, puppets, and miniatures of the first three Star Wars movies have been replaced in the last two by computer-generated images. The boy has exceptional skills. But he still has much to learn, Master. His abilities have made him, well, arrogant. Yes, yes. A flaw more and more common among Jedi. Hmm. Too sure of themselves they are. Even the older, more experienced ones. The use of computer animation allows Lucas to greatly expand the scope of his canvas in epic shots like this one. That looks sensational, but the surprise is episode two bogs down in too much dialogue. Apart from one big action sequence, the first hour is mostly stiff, banal commonplaces without any wit or excitement. And as for the images, Lucas shot episode two not on film, but on digital videotape with a new digital camera made just for him by Sony. Nineteen theaters will be showing it in digital projection. Everyone else and about 3,000 other theaters will see it transferred to film as I did. I saw the movie on a very big screen, which was not kind to the digital process. Scenes looked fuzzy, action was often unconvincing, and alien creatures sometimes lurched as awkwardly as in 1950s sci-fi pictures. The trailers on the web, curiously, look sharper and brighter than the movie did, so maybe Attack of the Clones would pop out more on a small multiplex screen or with a digital projector. I don't know, but judging from what I saw, Lucas's digital approach isn't able to hold a big screen convincingly. Well, I thought there was a visual texture to episode two that surpasses not only The Phantom Menace, but the first three Star Wars films. The blending of human actors, costume creations, elaborate sets, and those digital effects I thought was nearly seamless. This is a great-looking movie with distinct planet environments, sweeping astral landscapes, and even outer space rainstorms. It's not just the backdrops and the explosions that are more impressive, it's the non-human characters. The Yoda of Attack of the Clones is so expressive and mobile that he makes the old Yoda look like the sock puppet he is. Do you think these cloners are involved in the plot to assassinate Senator Amidala? No, Master, there appears to be no motive. Do not assume anything, Obi-Wan. Clear your mind must be if you are to discover the real villains behind this plot. The cast is also uniformly strong. It's not easy acting opposite robots and blue screens and imaginary Jedi masters, but Ewan McGregor, Hayden Christensen, Samuel L. Jackson, and Natalie Portman are more than up to the task. I really like the love story between Christensen and Portman, even though I couldn't quite figure out how he aged more than a decade while she looked pretty much the same as she did when he was a little boy. But that's a minor quibble. I like this movie a lot. Yeah, was she 10 years older than him or not? I thought so. But... Okay, now we disagree about the visuals, so let's okay. put that to one side. There is not one line in this movie that you could quote with any pleasure. It is the most banal script I've ever read. It's just all about exactly what the plot requires them to say in any given moment. And the love story yeah. is, is just... Is just dead in the water. I, I mean, don't think it's dead I didn't in the water feel at all. Any You've chemistry got... between them, and as for the things that they say, uh -huh. those are ancient, ancient, tired, tired, romantic cliches 
from a thousand thousand other movies. Well, this is a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, so oh, maybe okay. they invented these oh, cliches gee, and then Shakespeare got them from there. Oh, but wow. uh, first of all, Natalie Portman and Hayden Christensen are great looking actors, and I think they have a wonderful chemistry together. They're I like their like love sticks. scenes they together. Just, they just, I don't think they are at all. They just kind of stare at each other while I, I love you, you know, but I mustn't love you. Well, you oh, know, I think and then I, the rest of the dialogue all involves what's happened before, what's going to happen next, yeah, well, you know, what's you happening go, you, in the it, Empire, what's happening in the Republic. You go through all five Star Wars movies, and there's a lot of that sort of sci-fi western and outer space dialogue it's yeah, corny about, stuff and there's somebody, a lot of fortune cookie why wisdom can't somebody from Yoda. in this movie somebody in this movie have something interesting to say and say it with wit and style and flash the actors think, are all dialed down none of them seem excited enough to be who they are well I, I disagree with that as well and i think there are some witty exchanges between ewan mcgregor and hayden christensen you know the the apprentice and the master that sort of thing and it's a fun approach to the Star Wars story. This thing, this movie does not take itself as seriously as Phantom Menace does. And I think, you want to go back to the visuals, I think it looks great. Oh, well, I don't I think, think it, it looks great. great. For example, I you take you Yoda. That, now, you, you had, like this Yoda better than the other Yoda. Yeah, and you know what? Go back Come and look on. at that other Yoda. That it's, other, first that of other all, Yoda, the other you Yoda, can practically see the guy crouching underneath the other Yoda never looked like Yoda a sock puppet. puppet like but and not only didn't he not look like a sock puppet, but Lucas has said that he tried to make this Yoda look like the Muppet Yoda. Only so more expressive. Think, and there's this whole crouching Yoda hidden you dragon like the fact thing. that Yoda turns just, into an action figure now with his lightsaber. I think that that After is the a next scene movie, that, and, that and, Star know. Wars fans are going to absolutely love. I loved it's it. It's totally out of character there's form. A nice, it's not totally out of character form. That's part of his skills. He's not just this brilliant Listen, philosopher. If you're Yoda, He's also if you're a Jedi Yoda warrior. And you have the Force. He's a Jedi master. If you encompass the Force, you don't need no laser so saber. <laughs> you do when you're going up against another Jedi dude who's also got you just kind of go like powers. this. No, well, you, you're they, Yoda. They, Nobody they, can stop you. Well, <laughs> <laughs> he was being stopped mentally, so he had to go to the physical stuff. Okay. It's a, it's a lot of fun, and there's a lot of great action sequences. Okay, here. well, I'm sure that a lot of people will agree with you. I hope so. Okay. Here we see where Hayden Christensen was cast as Anakin. From his addition to being on set, you can clearly see why the cast and crew were so enamored with him. Whenever you're casting, first of all, you're always looking for a really good actor, somebody that really has a lot of craft and is really very talented, Action. who fits the part that you've created. For the role of Anakin, we um, had a formal screen test. 102 take one, Mark. To be honest, I went in with no expectations. I really wasn't thinking that, you know, ooh, I really want this part. It was just, wow, you know, that's George Lucas. This is cool. <laughs> In this particular case, I was looking for somebody who was very boyish and young, but had sort of a James Dean, sullen edge to him. Annie. Anakin. Annie makes me sound like a little boy. You look at those eyes, and there's just so much happening there. Hayden had all the elements of the character. I try to grow up too fast. I am grown up. About a week after my test, not even, I was lying in bed and got the phone call that I got the part. I never would have expected to be here right now. This is Star Wars. It's really, really cool. This is my first action. Hayden's uh, stepping into a huge part to play Anakin and to be the young Darth Vader, you know? Yeah, they're liking me today. I was always the youngest ones, and um, I'm now not, so... So, uh, <laughs> it's funny, the first day I, I had to take my lightsaber out and set, I didn't even realize what I was doing. And I, the first take I did, I was like, wow, wow. I was like, oh, no, you guys, you'll put that in later, won't you? I don't want to be, you know, showing him how things are because everyone has to find out for themselves. He's brilliant. I love him to death. He's a great kid. 
Anakin in this movie is a transitional character. He's going from the young Padawan learner to becoming aware of the fact there's more to him than that. He's always had a sense of longing for love in his life. Hayden's a wonderful actor. I'm really, really impressed by him, especially because he's very confident. And he's a much more complex character than the surface uh, belies. It's not really a mystery. Everyone knows that I'm going to the dark side. It's kind of like the Titanic sinking. Can you excuse me for just a moment? Well, for me, it's it's just heaps of fun to go in and, and get dressed up as a Jedi every day and put on the boots and get to wear the cloak occasionally. Right. He's got a fantastic mind. He understands exactly the part. Every stunt he's got on this movie, he'll do it. We have a double. We have a good double. Hayden's actually too good, and I'm not really doing very much at all. I mean, he's fiercer than the double, and... You know, he's made out of tough stuff. I was heavily involved in athletics and wanted to be a hockey player, wanted to be a tennis player. It's Star Wars, you know? Why would you not want to be a part of every aspect that you could? I don't want anyone else on the screen trying to do my thing. You know? I'll take a few bruises for the team. It's a stuntman in me. As much as it is my character, it's all coming from George's head. He is the definitive uh, of how it should be played. So you have to pay attention. Well, Hayden is actually a very talented actor. He's very good and very professional, works really hard. It's extraordinary to think that he's so young. I don't think he realizes how good he is. I had no idea. You try to give flashes of, of, of darkness and flashes of just pure innocence just to try to bring everything together. He was able to pull that off very well. And it was a hard thing to do. Giving yourself to the Jedi means giving your whole life... <clears throat> Well, cut that. (laughs) This wonderful clip shows how they bring the characters to life on film. In this instance, Dexter. From concept sculpt to how the character works and moves, this details the work going into each and every personality you see on screen. He's going to have a salt and pepper mustache. And uh, his shell is going to be a little greener. Dexter is the old kind of ornery cook in the back of the diner. I think he was an ex-bounty hunter, so it added a little grit to it. And I thought a four-armed cook thing would be cool, just because it's a cook in a diner and having four arms would be awesome. Uh, So I just put four arms on it. It was very free and open. Doug was just like, "Uh, give him another body option. You know, so we just did real quick tiny ones. You know, the bust was like maybe that big, and then I did two full bodies this big. And one of them was the kind of layout of Dexter, how he turned out. He had this, that big kind of a glottal thing here. And I always love Saimang monkeys. Then they, you know, they're super funny. They brachiate all around and make that hoot, you know, but before that hoot, they kind of go, whoo, and blow this thing up. And then they, whoo, 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 you know, and this thing keeps moving. And I just have always loved those. So I was like, I'm going to get one of those into one of the characters. And then it made the cut, and in the show, if you watch them, you know, the way they made that into a real breathing thing, like while he's talking, it kind of sinks in, and then he breathes, and then while he's talking, it sinks in again. It's really cool. There's these funny little cuts on the side that give it away. Those analysis droids only focus on symbols. It was cool to see a voice connected to him, and I loved his voice. That voice made the character really come to life. Buddy. 
his head is slightly over. But you put yours back. I up put mine back up yeah. like okay. that. So he's going to look a little bit taller when you compare the two. Okay. You know, his hands were super big, and that was a big change. You were like, whoa. And the costuming had kind of been added. I kind of sculpted him naked with a little just cook's cook uh, bib, like a little apron. In the concept phase, you just do your version, and what it ends up as, you're just kind of like, whoa, that's cool. Depends on what decks. On how good your manners are. How big your pocketbook is. <laughs> Attack of the Clones broke many boundaries with regards to digital filmmaking and special effects. Here we see Rick McCallum discuss why digital is better and even admits during the clip that the technology still has a way to go. For the kind of films that George makes, the kind of films that we make, we are ostensibly in the digital arena from the first day that we actually start working. Uh, most people fail to realize this, but basically what happens is every single frame, every single shot in the movie has a digital effect. Pretty much every set has blue screen, even if it's just out a window or something. It's everywhere. Uh, I think I've been on one set where there hasn't been any blue screen. That means we shot with no film whatsoever. We captured every image with a digital camera um, that encoded that image digitally. Uh, and, and that really made the process for us, because we were a very special effects-laden film, much easier because we have absolutely total control of every frame. We have about 2,200 shots in the movie, and every one of them has a digital effect in it. So that process of shooting digitally did two things. It made the process of us working uh, much more efficient, much cheaper, and much easier to work in. It gave us absolute, total, unequivocal control over every frame, every pixel within every frame. But most importantly, the real reason behind it was is we wanted to be able to capture an image digitally, have total control over it, and get it into a theater and show it to an audience exactly the way in which we made it. Not just the color imagery, but the sound itself. And, um, you know, that's the most difficult thing to do when you're a filmmaker. It's the most heartbreaking, painful, and even humiliating experience to, to spend three or four years on a movie, spend $100 million, and then you go to a local multiplex, um, and the film is running at half the luminance, it's scratched, it's dirty, it's out of focus, there's a lot of weave. It's terribly depressing. So that's one of the big things that we're trying to push. I mean, it's not part of our core business, um, but it's something that we're very interested in. Returning back to the point where people can actually see a quality presentation in a theater. Uh, technically, it's it's different than any film um, I think you, you can possibly make just because you aren't in any way really trying to emulate Earth. You know, he, he's, you know, created a completely, you know, different universe um, and, and, you know, such the necessity for, for all the blue screen work um, and, and, you know, that process uh, is... is is challenging in that you know you don't really have any environment to to interact with, but you know at the same time I think that it, it almost aids the actors in a sense because if if you did have a way of of you know tangibly bringing those those environments to a set and and you know have the actors actually work in these you know uh, these locations um, that don't really exist, I think I think you know we would be distracted by it and a little too in awe of of the absurdity of everything that was going on around us. And, you know, this is our world, and, and we should just take everything, you know, for granted as normal. Um, 
so you know having a sea of blue around you you know it makes you focus that much more on the actor in front of you you know if you're lucky enough to have one uh which you know from 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 you know my own character i was i was i did you know i, I had a lot of my work with with natalie and and ewan um so uh, I, I didn't so much mind that aspect of it. This next clip is great. It's Rick McCallum. He's talking about Yoda and how he costs the same as to hire, say, Tom Cruise for a movie. But obviously you don't have the actor's ego. Uh, Tom Cruise makes a lot of money making a movie. It costs just as much as to create Yoda, believe me. It's much better and easier. Um, the only thing is, is the great thing about Yoda, he doesn't ask for a bigger trailer. You know, he doesn't have a lot of assistance. Um, you know, he always shows up to work every time we want him. Um, but, you know, no, that will never happen. It's about, for our world, because it's such a science fiction and fantasy world, it's very important for us to be able to create digital characters that seamlessly can interact with live actors. Um and do it in a you know a fun and interesting and, and entertaining way, but also at the same time to have a performance where there's something really going on between the the two you know the digital character and the live actor. Um, to do that as a human being is ludicrous. I mean, it's you know it takes thirty or forty artists to create a performance like Yoda. Um, you know, I don't want to have to deal with thirty or forty people. Dealing with one actor is hard enough. The clone trooper design was integral to get correct for this movie. Hell, it's even in the title. Here we see what Lucas' vision was for this, and a great insight into the trooper gun history. It might be nice that when we cut in to this group, and we give them weapons, these guys march in, and then right before they turn, they do a maneuver. Yeah. You know, like with their guns, they, got a, they, they carry the big guns, and they go, and then they stop and turn. So they're turning, and they're like getting into position. Mike Murnane did the uh, sculpt of the clone troopers. He had a lot of models of, uh, of stormtroopers and stuff and, and uh, Boba Fett to try and take elements from those and make sure that they were included in there so that it had the same sort of feel like it was from the same universe. <laughs> Short for a stormtrooper. Six feet, or he should be six feet. One of the details that was a last-minute thing uh, was every Friday we have meetings with George to go over the designs, and he would give a feedback on what he thought, what he liked, what he didn't like, and tell us, you know, the development of the story because it was constantly evolving as we were working on things. And we realized, oh, no, Mike's got the model done. The meeting's this afternoon, but we don't have a gun for it. Okay, quick, let's just throw one together. So I went through the model kits that Mike Murnane had lying around. They were all different scales of Stormtrooper th guns and things. And so I took a regular old Stormtrooper rifle, cut the handle off it, turned it upside down, stuck it on the end of a Stormtrooper long rifle, and uh, we just sort of painted it black, stuck it in the model's hands, and put it out for the meeting, intending to go back and create something new and more interesting. And uh, that never ended up happening. And... That ended up in the film that way. So if you look at the clone trooper rifle, it's actually an old stormtrooper rifle in the wrong scale, flipped upside down, with another handle on the back. Magnificent, aren't they? The costumes were a hugely important part of Attack of the Clones, more colourful than we'd seen in previous Star Wars movies, in particular the original trilogy. So Trisha Bigger knew that they had to get the costumes right, especially for Padme. Tone it down. As I write the script, I work with a design group. I mean, this might be okay for Padme. And cut. 
pretty much as I write scenes, I say, okay, I got a scene here. What's that? In a romantic location on a lake, and it's going to be a love scene, and that kind of thing, so I need an outfit to, to go with that. As George sort of progressed with the script, he sort of realized more that he wanted to show a softer, sort of friendlier side to, to Padme. The other costumes in the first film really were about her being a queen. In episode one, she was a very formal figure and had to always be aware of her position. Last time they were so incredibly gorgeous, but it really cumbersome to wear. This one is much more about making her as beautiful as we possibly can. That's beautiful. And when Trish comes in, uh, a lot of things get thrown up because she then takes those and tries to translate those into real cloth and movement on, on the body and everything. They specifically worked hard to make them as comfortable as possible, and I really got to enjoy wearing these gorgeous, gorgeous clothes. Very good. That's fantastic. Isn't that fun? Which one is, what is this um, for? This is packing in the apartment. Packing? <laughs> you got it just like that to pack? <laughs> <laughs> Every day I'm in a different outfit. Big job. Natalie no longer plays the queen. She's now a senator, so the costumes are are less regal and less formal and less stylized. Why don't we put a T-shirt on her? How's that? Okay. My costumes are a little bit more revealing this time, much more feminine, not as rigid. Just to be a more casual, softer figure this time. This is um, P-19, which Padme wears um, when she goes on a picnic uh, up to the shack fields with Hayden from the uh, retreat island. You know, she is going to fall in love. The costume in the hills in Nauru is really, really beautiful. It felt like a period piece as opposed to, you know, this futuristic piece, but it's very romantic and um, flowing. This has all been embroidered, and we've laid on the little pieces of uh, roses onto the bodice just to link the whole thing to do. This is a little shawl that gets draped over the shoulders, and then there's twists of coloured ribbons in, in matching colours. Light, summery, but quite sort of fun, so she can run about the fields and the dress floats. <laughs> and then sort of with the hair, I think we made it very Star Wars-y. That was great. We have a much more romantic story so that Padme's costumes are obviously more sultry in nature and, you know, revealing and pretty. There's one costume that George designed himself. <laughs> and that was sort of the costume that, you know, I came on set and everyone was like, oh. <laughs> that was an interesting costume to wear. And it was really hard at the end of the day because the corset was so tight. They made my waist like you know, 20 inches or something. It's him. Magical. It's the great way that George sort of portrays women. They can be powerful and they can be soft and they can wear beautiful clothes and, and that doesn't contradict her strength. I think that's great with this character. That's sitting for tight. She's this like tough, smart woman that everyone's trying to kill because she's such a powerful leader and she also wears the coolest clothes. <laughs> So amongst all the CGI that was going on, there was still a lot of physical model work being done. And this clip 
explores the process of Zam Wessel Speeder right from the concept stage through to the actual prop. And we get to see just how much input Lucas has on all of these areas and how much work goes into each individual piece. We first see Zam Wessel Speeder in the uh, chase on Coruscant where uh, Obi-Wan and Anakin are trying to find out who's been killing people. Uh, when I was first given the designs for what became Zam Wessel Speeder, uh, again, we didn't have the script yet. It was early on in the production of Episode 2. And uh, that particular speeder was intended for the Caminos. Um, in fact, there was a uh, piece of artwork that showed a Camino kind of with his head l- tucked down low and forward to try and fit into the uh, the, the speeder, which didn't really seem to work, I think, for him, and probably just as well that they didn't end up using them. But it was interesting that it got repurposed for another character later on. Originally, you couldn't get into inside the model. Um, I, I carved it from a wooden block, and then they came back to it and said, oh, we have an interior we want to put into it. So I had a design for an interior that I had to then fit inside of this model. So I had to cut the model open and figure out how to put uh, put an interior inside of it. I mean, what you could do is um, round this off. Okay, run it off this way. Run it off that way, mm-hmm. and then make this window continue all the way up to this. So it's like one, oh, okay. one bubble. I think the look was nice because it had a certain amount of menace to it, I think, that worked for her character. Because uh, at that point of the film, you didn't know whether it was a man or a woman or some sort of other alien. And so to have have the ships or look like the character's uh, persona, I think, really helps in the film. The sounds of Attack of the Clones are next level. And here's Ben Burt, Matthew Wood and George Lucas on just how important the sound is to a movie like this. We also get to see Ben Burt and Matthew Wood in a plane recording some sounds for the movie. I've always had the uh, sound designer working on the picture from the very beginning. Ben Burt created the sound for the laser sword that really affected how I approached the laser sword fight. Fantasy like Star Wars uh, requires the complete uh, fabrication of a complete sound world from footsteps to exploding space stations. Ben's sounds, they're really unique, and he has just a great library of sound that he's worked with and great experience and great knowledge in that area of the artistic development of sound. Matthew Wood worked on episode one, setting up the whole sound design workstation that that I was to use. He was uh, my mentor and teacher to get me started as I, Rip Van Winkle, woke up in the future and sound had gone from the moviola analog audio to the Pro Tools and being digital. I provide him raw sound effects elements. We're revving it to the next level with the film. Let's do it with sound, too. This is the only flying example of a Vickers Vimy in the world. This was uh, the B-1 bomber of World War I. Ben has a huge amount of plane recordings, and a lot of those plane recordings have actually ended up as spacecraft in the Star Wars universe. Just wanted to get it. He knew it was something unique that didn't exist everywhere. 
I just have all the, the major parts of the movie in my mind and what we need to record and what elements I can provide for Ben. Pretty amazing, huh? I'll get a, a takeoff and landing. And then I also want just a couple of buys. So while I'm there, if you, you know, maybe just one or two, just like going by me and then a circle. Could we do that? You know, you're going over me so I can get the Doppler effect of the, you know. Okay. Check, 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 check. It's uh, totally unique. They've got this giant wood propeller, so hopefully they're going to oscillate in some way that's going to sound unique. I'll try to get as many different types of sounds that it makes. That's amazing. And then all these metal struts here will be dragging in the wind. That that can make a nice sound. If I just stayed at those fence posts and walk about, you said, a mile out there? About a mile, yeah. Yeah. Brakes work on this thing now? Yeah, they do. Sure. Brakes work good. Are we ready? Anything unique? Anything unique we can get for the Star Wars movie? Hey, are we in a good location? I don't want to get him like right when he's leaving the ground. thing about this airplane, it's the first airplane to fly across the Atlantic Ocean non-stop, first airplane to fly from England to Australia, and the first airplane to fly from England uh, to South Africa. It does have a really interesting sound. It's like a giant car. the best sounds are not things that you think of uh, and imagine and then go out and search for, but rather discoveries you make. Sound is happening all the time, so <laughs> you're going to get something. Um, but a lot of the stuff that you get is unexpected. Cool. The basic things that you always need to record, especially for the Star Wars movies, are like uh, you need vehicles, you need passbys. <laughs> Might be the base sound, might be Obi Wan's ship. No one is really going to be able to identify it as a as a plane, especially after Ben gets done tweaking it out. The end result of a motion picture is a great combination of picture and sound working together to most effectively and dramatically tell the story. Yeah, that was perfect. That really, I got a really interesting sound out of there, and we're definitely, I, it's going to end up in the film, I bet. Cool. The decision to bring Boba Fett into the backstory of the clones was always a risk with such a well-loved and mysterious original trilogy character, but it worked. Django Fett also becoming a fan's favourite. This clip is brilliant. We see how much fun Daniel Logan has on set alongside Tamora Morrison becoming a father figure to him off screen too. This video really gives you a better understanding of the Fets and the backstory of these beloved characters. Much rain as we can get, much wind as we can get. One of the great things about episode two is it really delivers on this mysterious and wonderful character Boba Fett and also someone who's equally uh, mysterious. Uh, the character called Django Fett. I guess he's the original bounty hunter then. 
because Boba Fett's like 11 years old in this one. Come back on uh, Monday, I think, to fly spaceships. Can you do that? Fly through asteroids? Fight? Shoot? Took him under my arm. Call me dad now while we're here. Okay, I'll call you son, you know, just so we get the bit of bonding going. We just got to use our imaginations. Actually, I think this is what fans have been waiting for ever since they saw Boba Fett and The Empire Strikes Back. Bounty hunters. And the very first day was um, a scene with all the bounty hunters. And I, really all I was doing was just standing and looking at Darth Vader occasionally. No disintegration. As you wish. I remember my younger son saying, um, isn't it funny you put a bucket over your head, Dad, and, uh, you know, and people think you're rather cool. He's all yours, bounty hunter. It was very exciting because the first real science fiction film I'd done. Put Captain Solo in the cargo hold. Human, yes. Um, origin, unknown. Planet, unknown. He was quite a special character. It's the mystery behind this uniform. You need to see the film several times to think, why does he wear this death head on his epaulette? Uh, they had little knee pads where I could fire darts with. They were Velcroed on, and by the end of the day, they'd obviously slipped round, so you'd have to keep shifting them. And if I walked, which I didn't do much of, they'd shoot across the room because the Velcro would snap off and fly. It wasn't easy. This is from Empire, and there's Boba Fett on set with his knee pads on upside down and his trousers rolled up. <laughs> so when we first got the photos from the fitting and we put it next to, you know, put them next to one another, you could see who it was meant to be, yeah. but also you could see it was a different character, which was quite cool. They used the Boba Fett costume for my costume as well. May the Force be with you, bro. gone for this new kind of silver millennium kind of colour feels amazing and privileged to hold that mantle of the Boba Fett reign, you know George, what's my lines today, George? Any dialogue? You draw your guns and you pow, pow, pow The fight scene with Obi-Wan Kenobi <laughs> The space chase through asteroid planets and the helmet, of course. And that got a bit uh, a bit much in the rain sometimes. Believe me, this is rain. This is real rain. Roll cameras. You know, while you're doing your action and your fight scenes... And the thing fogs up, I can't see anything. Oh, well, I'll just carry on like this. <laughs> I can just see this blur coming down. Being a... Uh, Strong, virile Maori warrior from New Zealand. Well, you just got to deal with these elements and carry on. Thank goodness for those stunt doubles. <laughs> Good MC George, the director. Ask him what your motivation. I love Boba Fett. I mean, we get to spend a lot of time with him in this movie. We get to understand where he comes from, but we also understand that uh, we get to understand that his identity is forged in some of the most powerful events that take place in the whole Star Wars saga. But the biggest thing of all, he's, uh, he's pretty cool, yeah. <laughs> May the force be with me. It's awesome. It's even more powerful than what we see um, in uh, Empire Strikes Back. I think it's, uh, people are going to be blown away, not only by the costume, but by the performance and the whole overall 
um, story that takes place between Jango Fett and Boba Fett. I want it right up in space. Although the majority of the world's films for Attack of the Clones were done by CGI, they still went out on location to places like Lake Como, uh, like Tunisia, returning to the homestead. And this bit of uh, footage in this clip celebrates that these locations are still vital to Star Wars. When I did Star Wars, I had to come up with environments. You know, if you think of outer space and you think of other planets, they're all basically deserts. So that was a natural to be able to go, you know, 25 years ago in the middle of the desert and take this English crew and movement of that was bold and um, it was also foolhardy and it worked. I thought we were crazy. Yeah. I thought you were crazy. Well, everybody did. Yeah. But that's all right. I'm happy now. The most difficult and challenging location was in uh, Norway, Finsk, the Hoth ice planet. We ran into, uh, you know, blizzards and uh, whiteouts and all kinds of things that slowed down the production, stopped it for days on end. You know, we didn't go to Norway to go skiing and, you know, we didn't go to the desert to get a suntan. And, you know, it's like basically uh, you're trying to get the work done. That was a different era in filmmaking history then. In those days, virtually everything had to be built physically, whereas we have uh, much more flexibility now in the digital arena. We're getting closer and closer to where we have to shoot less and less on location. When we were doing episode two, we were going to Italy for less than a week. We were going to Spain for less than a week. Tunisia, just over a week. England, just over a week. It becomes a really interesting challenge in terms of the movement of people, the feeding of them, uh, making sure that they're taken care of. We are arriving to Travagiari. Ah! Ciao, ragazzi. Most filmmakers would rather be able to focus on the work at hand and not have to deal with how do you get there and what the elements are like when you're there. And it's 10 o'clock, and I just want to shoot and get started. <laughs> I don't like getting my first shot off this late. No. I was scouting locations uh, as I was on my vacation, and I knew I had a scene that took place in some villa someplace in a beautiful part of the countryside that was extremely romantic. I had the exact location, but I didn't have the exact scene. <laughs> I saw a picture of Lake Como, one of the locations in Italy. It's just it's surrealistic. It looks like it belongs in Star Wars. Before this, I've never been outside of North America, so it's, it's my way of seeing the world a little bit right now, too. I think the thing I enjoy about locations in general is is just the feeling that you're not in control. You know, that anything can happen. The case with the rain is you look at George, he looks at you. We're in a digital environment. You have such control over every single frame. We looked at each other and said, hey. It's God's way of describing the scene. It could be worse. It could be snowing. Tomorrow we go to Tunisia. Africa. Africa. Desert. Very hot. And action! <laughs> Just think, 24 years ago, I vowed never to return to this awful planet. <laughs> and here I am, doing it again. We seem to be made to suffer. It's our lot in life. I know a few of the actors that would rather not be out here. 
<laughs> it hasn't changed too much. It's our little funky set. All the little set pieces have been rebuilt, but uh, these are the original uh, little you know, earthen craters that uh, were there before. It's going back to the homestead, obviously. It's like going back to where you grew up. You know, it's a little weird. It's a little nostalgic and... You know, it's, it's, there's a certain amount of emotion that goes with uh, being back in a place you were, you know, 25 years before. Beautiful. I'm getting spine tingles. I bet. You know, the most telling moment this morning was when I saw one of the moisture evaporators. Where were you? Yeah, the evaporators kept falling over in the middle of a take, which was kind of embarrassing. Then in the middle of a take, you know, bits of my costume would fall off. The jar was would start crying. All right, let's try one more a little bit faster. Almost any location I've shot on, I've been able to get material that I just couldn't get uh, in a studio or uh, it would take a very long time to recreate digitally. The more real things you can get in your image, the more believable those images are, and you just have to sort of tweak them for, sort of on set or in post-production. All the environments uh, that we're shooting, uh, I've always intended to digitally change so they don't look quite as they are in real life. Technologically, we're in areas that most people won't get to for another three or four or five years, and we're always on the bleeding edge of it. With digital technology the way it is, we can recreate uh, a lot of the vastness and the big parts of the location uh, digitally. And action! So, George, why are you shooting a shot for episode three? I can't tell you that. <laughs> Whilst filming on location in Tunisia, Ahmed Best catches up with Anthony Daniels, Daniels' first return to the location and the homestead since filming A New Hope. Ahmed Best here in the homestead in Tatooine. We're in a place called Makmata in Tunisia in the desert, and this is where the homestead is. And right now we have the man himself, Mr. Anthony Daniels. Anthony Daniels, how are you? And how are you? I am good, thank you very much. You're back in Tunisia. How does it feel being back in the desert, in the heat, where it all began? Weird, strange, hot, uh, kind of fun to have all my friends around. Now, you haven't been on this set ever, on this particular set with the evaporators. How does it feel coming to it? How was it? You saw it for the first time. What was your impressions? What did you feel? I saw it for the first time in the movies themselves. I was one of the people in the audience looking down into this pit. I only ever made it up to the top before. And I think it's progress that I come down three levels. Yeah, I, I think that's neat. I think, I think that's, that's like karma. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. I was born to, to sink. You were born to sink. Now, we saw you on another web doc where you were working out the puppet. You got the workings of the puppet down. Do you? Is it exact science? Is it like being in the costume? Is it not like being in the costume? What's it like? It's total brain surgery. It's a completely different art form, uh -huh. uh, something I had to kind of work out with a little rehearsal, kind of seeing what was good, what was bad, what was like, forget it. Right. And um, then I saw it on screen, and it looked okay. But, hey, the guys have got to judge that for themselves. Well, I'll tell you one thing, everybody out there on the World Wide Web, I loved it. I know you're going to love it when you see it on screen. You can't see none of it on screen right now. This is the man, this is the originator, never the duplicator, Mr. Anthony Daniels. I'm on my best, www.starwars.com. I'm always bringing yo, the gas holy yo. Now, the supporting artists don't always get the recognition that they deserve. Just ask friend of the show, Mark Hockley. They're herded from pillar to post. And this video just shows how vital these extras are to create worlds and to populate environments. And where planet are you from? Uh, it's Sydney. <laughs> there are sequences in Star Wars like the Cantina where 
I think that's certainly my favorite sequence, and that's entirely made up of extras, and it turned out to be one of the best in the whole saga. Extras seem to have very high self-esteem, I think, because they're put through so much during the day. They're herded around like cattle. Get on the bus! Get on the bus! <laughs> they don't do anything for hours at a time, so you have to really feel good about yourself. I'm a spaceman, but a very important spaceman. As an ordinary extra, I say you're not a star, but you're a, a twinkle beyond Pluto. <laughs> the response for Star Wars has been like no other production I've ever worked on because people know it and they love it and they're dedicated to it and they're fans. It's so different working on a project that has um, so much history. The Ewoks. The Ewoks. Yeah. Why did you remember that one? Oh, because I didn't get the pack. <laughs> I've seen every Star Wars film in the first week it was out and I just can't believe I'm here. Stroke of luck, really. The force was with us. <laughs> I know. The reaction, particularly with younger people, when you just casually mention, oh, I've done a couple of days in Star Wars. Star Wars! I know, yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. I'm getting ready for my part as an intergalactic backpacker. You're all normal pedestrians. An extra is someone who is in the background of a scene who has no dialogue but may have a little bit of business. You go in the direction I told you to go as I walked along the side. You're an animated body. An animated body, a screen filler. <laughs> so, folks, just pick it up a bit, just be a bit animated. Just because you're in space doesn't mean that you can't have fun. You'll see that this is actually all fogged up, so it's impossible to see out of any of this. But, I mean, that's the fun of acting, really, isn't it? <laughs> we actually don't need an acting ability. You're always going to be doing the same thing. What we need is a look. Basically, what we want to do is try and fit the faces of the particular extras into... Um, costumes which would suit their own little characters. You sort of can't just have a costume allotted for people because we're getting all different shapes and sizes. I can't see where, where he's moving the lightsabers. Jedi's don't have to see. Got it? When you finish your schooling, you'll look like Ewan McGregor. Lots of facial hair, tall. Everybody falls for the strong sign yeah, I mean, yeah, I That's you, right? Yeah! Every creature and every extra that you see in each movie has a name, has a personality, um, has a backstory. They are some sort of being that has actually been given a life. There's one in um, episode two. His name is Kit Fisto. Just an extra, a guy, but all of a sudden, like, put in his name, and now there's the story there. Like, you want to know something about him. I love it. Shoot it. When this goes on, I'm a totally different person. <laughs> I'm female. We have a sequence in episode two where we're in a nightclub. Yo, we got a really good date for you. Surprise. I fixed you up. Horror. Put your arm around Tony here. <laughs> there you go. It's a very classic Western type of barroom scene where the doors fly open and the two gunslingers walk in. We needed about 150 extras. There had to be a certain look to them. I've never looked like this before. I have been airbrushed all over. It's a place that's in the lower depths of, of Curacao, a place that we actually haven't really seen before. There is one thing worse than working with me, it's being an extra in a Star Wars movie, okay? <laughs> and I, I would that. debate that. 
So when we come around to that second position. And you have a great first assistant director um, who can move his extras around. Oh, it's fantastic. Everyone take a step to their right. There's two rules. First rule is I don't care what you do. I don't care where you go. I don't care if you need to buy a paper, go to the bathroom, whatever. But the second rule is you've got to tell me you're going to do it. You guys just stepped off set. What happened? Stand-ins are slightly higher in status than, than extras. Perhaps when you're standing in the queue at lunchtime, you, you can stand in front of someone who's an extra. We are indebted to you for your bravery, Obi-Wan Kenobi. In episode one, there's a scene, a particularly beautiful, haunting, and dramatic scene, where there are two um, extras who I think basically define what extra acting is all about. Congratulations on your election, Chancellor. That happens to be Ben Burton and myself in this sequence. Classic example for anyone that anyone can be an extra, but they can do it a lot better than we did. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you so much. Building worlds, building characters, building environments, they all go hand in hand in Star Wars to create a visual spectacular every time. And Doug Chang speaks so passionately here about building the Geonosian race. Designing the characters for um, Geonosis was really interesting. I mean, it's, you know, prior to this, when I was working on episode one, we did a whole bunch of character designs, and there's, you know, various ideas that were kind of put aside for later. And George um, responded to one of them. Yes, very good. There was good heads and things of those kinds of characters in there. Okay. So the the Geonosians were, I think the general term was sort of the termite people, so they were kind of subterranean, and it was imagined that uh, they had built up these stalactite architectural structures the way termites build their, their mounds. And so we went and started really thinking, okay, well, if this is kind of a, um, a society that lives on this very dry planet, and they live underground, and they're kind of insect-like, what could they look like? What could they be? I like the more uh, dragonfly-ish okay, the wings, wings, the more transparent. Okay. We gave them the classic you know, insect profile. We gave them hard body armor cause to protect themselves from the harsh element. We gave them wings so they could fly. Uh, and all these little pieces of elements that we started to pull from our research started to piece together to create the, the ideal look for the Geonosians. They have these kind of articulated, almost grasshopper-like mouth plates and things like that, so it was sort of defined that, the way the eye sockets might work and uh, kind of the, this gritty texture they had on their, on their bodies overall, this kind of armored exoskeleton. Once George was sort of happy with that, he said, okay, now let's let's make soldiers and let's make the you know the the leader poggle the leader has a very different sort of look if you do that and you can do something here whether something that comes off the shoulders yeah well you could you could like tie some ropes and tie some feathers or something down there maybe you know just hang and it was it was trying to sort of mix the human element of you know an advanced society but that's they're insects essentially and and uh how how do those two how can you mush those together Although every frame of this movie includes CGI, and many of the worlds are created by computer, there were still some wonderful models and sets built. None more so than the arena for the Geonosis battle. This is world building at its best. We're trapped in an impossible situation. With no means of escape. Well, the arena scene in the picture starts out as an execution, uh, and then it turns into a giant battle with Jedi. And then uh, that turns into the Clone War. Real six, as we call it. 
there are only 100 Jedi available. And most of them were at Jedi resorts where we go and rest. We had to call them out. <laughs> There's 200 Jedi Knights who have flooded into the arena fighting on the arena ground. To create that scene, we're filming each Jedi one at a time with two different cameras so we can actually take the part of that fight that we like and then we can actually composite them all together in one big fight where there'll be 100 of them all together in one shot. A lot of it is that more than any other kind of movie, this depends on trust. And you don't quite know what's happening, you get, especially actors get very nervous. Mm -hmm. you know, especially when there's nothing to hang on to. And I don't even know everything that's going to be there until I actually start working on it. It really is like a giant sketchbook. Giving more of a, like a poetic, just general swath of the, you know, what is the feeling, the mood, the lighting, color, palette of a location. The, the whole world of Geonosis is a combination of a kind of organic designed environment with a kind of tinge of industrial design in it. Through the notes and direction and, and George's sort of trust in us exploring things, literally in the doodle sketchbook phase, we can quickly leap from a, a verbal concept to these color abstracts. George really was into the... Um, these termite-inspired towers, as if uh, you know, they're great architects in the natural world. So, by bringing in these tower elements, um, carving into the rocks, it shows a, an ancient society, a very insect-like and very primal. Poggle, something a little bit tougher than the average uh, Geonosian. George presented them as a species that could just sort of disappear into the rock. These ideas provide an inspiration and a conversation point for our meetings with George. Once we've had those conversations about the Clone War, we're basically everything in the movie's covered. Yeah. And we're in it, in everything. There's nothing sort of sitting on the shore anymore. It was a giant arena where there was an execution, so it was very much you know, like a Roman Coliseum in that guise of a spectator sport. We built this huge stadium. During the ground battle, we'll use this. It'll be photographed and then replicated over and over again to help create the Geonosian landscape. I think the camera move is going to start somewhere in here and use this corner as if the gunships have come out. They're coming around here, they're heading that way, and they're kind of flying past this piece so the camera will come across this way. Fabulous. Fantastic. It's exotic, something we haven't done before. So here we go. Here we go. 300 something shots. <laughs> A whole reel. The ability to be able to take anything that you can imagine and turn it into a completely photorealistic event where you can comp in any actor and it's seamless is really the dream that all of us have. It's, it's his point of view, so the camera okay. would be right there. You see this edge. Pretty tight then, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. kind of sort of a waist shot. Yeah. Okay. Shoot that, then we have a geography of what it is we're looking at in terms of backgrounds and whatnot. It's a giant exercise in having a vivid imagination. And 
the effect of a thousand screaming termites. Yeah. yeah. That helps. We've got match moves that have come from the plates that they shot on live action. I can now key out the blue and then see what our characters look like when I'm first lining up the shot. So that as we pan or tilt or slide across the background, it's going to match exactly what the characters are doing. Now we get a lot of close-up shots, and so we found that it would be faster if we just split the entire arena in half and then have one crew doing the opposite direction of the other crew. And that way we can get more stuff into post faster and get those shots coming out. think is probably the largest action sequence we have ever tried to even contemplate, uh, much less achieve. Uh, um, we're very, very excited about it. It is so big. Whether there'll be anything quite on this level in terms of a real six in the next film, but, you know, it'll be more like uh, Empire, where it's you know, mostly just personal rather than grandiose. That's what you said last time. Well, I said, well, I said this is a love story, and it's not a... Yeah, so there's going to be lots of original effects this time, because it's, it's a love story. I lied, didn't I? The three creatures created for the battle sequence were outstanding designs. Here we see the design process, and hear from the model makers that help bring these designs to life. Yo! That's cool. What is that, John? It's the accolade. With the accolade itself, it was just one of those characters that I was really honored to be able to work on because it was just different. It was different. I mean, it has a cross between, I mean, like an insect type, uh, kind of like a like a reptile, um, has all these little details on, on the back. is kind of furry. It looked like one of those characters that was really just very original because it had all these different elements to it. And the detail was like trying to put different animals or different insects and put them all meshed into one character. He's got little iron on the end of his elbow. See how dangerous he is? He got me then. It's just a model. <laughs> By the time it got into the CG form, they did do some changes of the color, and I think they put an eyeball right here in the middle. So that's the things that, you know, it's kind of interesting. It, it, you hope they don't change it that much, but when they do, you're like, okay, I hope it's all for the good, and you see it, and it was it still looked like the Acolyte, except it just had a eye in the front of the face, and it was kind of like, oh, okay, interesting. Well, it's, it's still one of those characters that I could be, you know, proud to be a part of. So you see this big rhinoceros coming to attack you, and then this is also coming. It's bigger than this. Yeah, it's real tall. A man can... A man fits under here. It's taller than a person by a long shot. But it's got, you know, and its mouth will be open and it's these slavering teeth and it'll be skittering down the thing toward you. The Nexu was one of three creatures in, in this Genosian gladiatorial arena. The Nexu sort of filled the role, if you're looking back at the, the Roman gladiatorial arenas, of a lion or a tiger. And the, the trick, as far as I was concerned, was to, to not make it too literal. Originally, George was actually talking about it being albino, which is why this guy has pink eyes. We always try to show some variations. So these are from albino to 
to kind of brownish to a spotted, kind of a spotted albino, and then finally to a, a striped version. And it was the striped one that, that George ended up liking in the end, and that's the version we see in the film. It always helps to know what a creature is going to do, and uh, George said this is going to be the creature that climbs up the a pillar after, after Padme. And then another close-up of her, and then she turns and looks, and then it's her point of view as this other the cat creature sort of comes up the over the pole toward her. Again, always looking, you know, to, to nature and, and things that function uh, in the, the natural world. Uh, was looking at arboreal creatures, so things that, that like sloths uh, that climb, and there's, there are these sloths that have these big claws. And then it's a predator, so it's got this huge mouth with huge teeth like prehistoric uh, salamanders and, and vipers and multiple eyes like uh, spiders. So it's, it's kind of taking things from from vicious <laughs> creatures in nature and, and putting them together in a way that looks like it it works and would make sense and there's there's almost some evolution behind it i did uh just to try to reinforce how it might move i would do a, a piece like this that shows just a basic diagram of of how the 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 basic skeletal structure would move as as the creature is going through a walk cycle or a run cycle and then uh, just two variations while it's walking, how this thing moves much more like a lizard than a lion. Part of the challenge was making something that size and and with those proportions actually move like a lizard. And I know that in the end, the animators sort of, I think they did sort of a hybrid where it couldn't exactly be one or the other just because of the way it was shaped. When I was sculpting it, I was imagining it moving very close to the ground and, and something that in its native habitat would, would climb trees and things with its, the, the way its claws were. With the reek, it was the, you know, specifically a dinosaur one. And at one point, George brought in a little piece of reference of this specific dinosaur. It had that shape of that kind of heavy, kind of bison front with the, with the pointy back. And he was like, make it something like this. And then Ian had done a drawing of a bull with uh, these two big giant kind of toenails, but it's in this, this U, like a uh, horseshoe. And, he, and George liked those, I think. He's like, let's le- use those feet. And uh, then it was given to me, like, do, do something, you know, in sculpture form. And I did a quick little tiny maquette that looked just like the reek as it ended up being. And it was that shape of that dinosaur. And then I just redesigned the head to have those three horns kind of more towards the way the reek ended up. And then we added battle damage. You know, he was, I think George was like, yeah, get some more damage on it because he's a... You know, this arena character that's slamming into uh, cement and stuff. Specifically with the head, it was trying to make another interesting character. And, like, all the little um, bits that are on are all kind of leading to the eyes. Like, I'm always, when I'm designing a face, even if it's a creature, raw creature, I want to have some character in it, so I'll try to design things that almost point at the eyes because the eyes usually you know are where character sits even the flow of the color to get brighter right at the eyes that was a nice death 
you know, this huge creature that you would think would take forever to die, and he just kind of is just like, boom, and he's down. That was kind of good. There have been so many great chat show performances from all the cast from this film over the years. We're going to pick out just three here to add in. This is Natalie Portman in 2006, hosting Saturday Night Live. I am thrilled to be here in New York City hosting Saturday Night Live. You know, I've been in over a dozen films, but I think people probably know me best from my role in the three Star Wars movies. You have a question? Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, funny you mentioned Star Wars. Uh, I, I have an episode two specific question. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, are we honestly supposed to believe that Jango Fett willingly worked hand-in-hand with Sifo Dias in the Galactic Senate to build a clone army on the planet of Kamino? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I get this all the time. You know, certain kinds of people think that just because I was in Star Wars, I, I know everything about it. So you don't know the answer? <laughs> well, I'd begin by saying that Sifo Dias never worked directly with Jango Fett, and it was Darth Tyrannus who selected the Mandalorian bounty hunter after Sifo Dias' murder. Right, I forgot that. I forgot about that. Well, I, I, I guess you also forgot that Count Dooku, who later became Darth Tyrannus, murdered Sifo Dias at the orders of Darth Sidious and then later presented his lightsaber to General Grievous. Never mind. (laughs) The cast were into their promotion pushes big time as the movies hit cinemas worldwide. May the 17th, 2002, Ewan McGregor joined Jay Leno for The Tonight Show, where he shared a story about his actor, Uncle Dennis Lawson, a.k.a. Wedge, Red 2. Well, you must have been—you must have been the coolest guy in school, and your uncle. It was so. very cool to have him. Yeah, yeah. And then when when I was getting closer to being cast as Obi Wan, because I, 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 I thought about it for a very long time because it was huge, right. huge film, and I didn't know it wasn't quite the thing I'd been doing. And but the nearer I got, the more I wanted to do the part. And I asked his advice, and he said, "Don't, don't do it." <laughs> <laughs> he said, "Don't do it." And I went, "Well, I don't know. I think I really want to do it." He went, "Don't do it." So I said, why? And he said, well, I'd like you to have a career after you're 30. Was his advice? Uncle Dennis, that was terrible. <laughs> but here we are. I'm still working now. You're still eh? working. you got one more to go. Now, this is episode two, Attack of the... You know, I thought it was terrific. I, yeah, I really I enjoyed it. it. Yeah, I really it's, enjoyed it as well. The story and the yeah. little romance thing. And, of course, the special effects are amazing. So tell people... Well, what... it's incredible. I mean, I think in, the, in episode one of Phantom Menace, we've laid down the whole groundwork for six movies. We had to set up all the... That what the Jedi Order was like, what the Senate was like. You know, there was a lot of things that were talked about in the, in the original three films right. that we had to go back and kind of set up. So that, that being said, and that having been done, we really um, kick off in this second one. You know, I think uh, it's mu- it feels much more reminiscent to me uh, like the original three, right, like yeah. um, uh, Empire Strikes Back or something like that. The final chat show piece we are going to show here is Samuel Jackson on the Graham Norton show here in the UK and discussing how he got a purple lightsaber. And is the thing about your, your lightsaber being a different colour, is that story true? That you The purple lightsaber? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, when I first got that job, I didn't know what I was going to do. When I said I wanted to be in Star Wars, George invited me over to the ranch. I got over and told him, look, I just want to be in a movie. I'll be a stormtrooper. You can put me in one of those white suits. Let me run across the screen. <laughs> Nobody needs to know that but me. And I'll be happy. And he's like, no, we'll figure out something. So I got over here, and he made me a Jedi. Um, you know. Um, and I was 
pleased. I did some scenes with Yoda, and I did some scenes with Liam, and everything was great. And then I came back the next year, and I was like, okay, he didn't kill me off. <laughs> and there's this big, we had this big arena fight scene with all these Jedi in there fighting or whatever. And I was like, well, shit, I want to be able to find myself in this big old scene. So I said to George, you think maybe I can get a purple lightsaber? And he's like, <laughs> lightsabers are green or lightsabers are red. And I'm like, yeah, but I want a purple one. You know? <laughs> I'm like the second baddest Jedi in the universe. That's the you think, let me think about it. And when I came back to do reshoots, he said, I'm going to show you something. It's already causing a shit storm online. (laughs) And he had the purple lightsaber. And I was like, yeah. So um, I could find myself in that big fight scene in the middle of that, you know. There's like 300 lightsabers in there. There I am right there. Oh, yeah, that's dope. Yeah, they make it. Oh, hang on. Wow. There you go. <laughs> that's the expensive that's one. Awesome. No, there's nothing to do with it. It just... What? Well, there's a couple oh, things sorry. you can do with it, and one of them would be give it to me. Oh. Okay. That's someone someone in the office would be you know, so Can I just say, upset. someone in the office is Someone in the office is going to be really pissed. There you go. I'll touch Look it, and it'll be worth oh, more. How's it feel? You know we would love this. My son? Oh, if you hit it, it no, does but... things. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it oh makes noise. Yeah. Look at that. If my son had that, I would be decapitated. He does! No. Oh. I have the real one at home that has bad muscle right here. <laughs> yeah. really? Are you serious? Yeah. You look good. See, she's auditioning. Yeah, she's auditioning. <laughs> it's like going up for bat. <laughs> yeah, you can be. Like that? Oh, yeah. This is amazing. This gives you power. Yeah, you look good with it. I feel good. Don't with touch it. that part. Oh, you don't touch that? <laughs> no. You burn the fingers up. Sus. Yeah. Whoa. Oh. 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 It just went off in your hands. Oh. Oh. <laughs> so sorry. Somebody said that before. Are you sure? Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. I have that one in my closet. Person. It's not his to give away. <laughs> just like Julie the Fates of the Phantom Menace, Across the Stars was released with some wonderful behind-the-scenes footage of the recording and debuted on MTV. You want to buy some death sticks? You don't want to sell me death sticks. I don't want to sell you death sticks. You want to go home and rethink your life. I want to go home and rethink my life. Beautiful, I mean. 
Please don't look at me like that. Just being around her again is intoxicating. Be mindful of your thoughts, Anakin. They betray you. You have made a commitment to the Jedi Order, a commitment not easily broken. There aren't enough Jedi to protect the Republic. We're keepers of the peace, not soldiers. They are using a bounty hunter named Jango Fett to create a clone army. We must stop them before they're ready. I will not let this Republic be split in two. It must be difficult having sworn your love to the Jedi. Not being able to do the things you like. Or be with the people that I love. Are you allowed to love? I thought that was forbidden for a Jedi. You're making fun of me. Oh, no, I'd be much too frightened to tease a senator. <laughs> you don't need guidance, Anakin. I see you becoming the greatest of all Jedi. Follow that speeder! He went that way. This is a shortcut, I think. Well, you've lost it. If you'll excuse me. I hate it when he does that. We could keep it a secret. We'd be living a lie. I couldn't do that. Could you, Anakin? She's a politician and they're not to be trusted. I've heard this lesson before. You haven't learned anything, Anakin. It's all Obi-Wan's fault. He's holding me back. You're not all powerful, Anakin. Well, I should be. Someday I will be the most powerful Jedi ever. I will create a grand army of the Republic to counter the increasing threats of the Separatists. Hasn't been a full-scale war since the formation of the Republic. You must join me, Obi-Wan, and together we will destroy the Sith. The dark side clouds everything. In grave danger you are. Just before we close out, here's a short collection of some of the bloopers from this film. Hayden Christensen clearly had issues standing on his legs, uh, falling over in so many of these. These may be better on the enhanced, but too good to leave out. Where are you going? To find Obi-Wan. No, you're not. Let go of me. <laughs> May the force be with you, Anakin.
Oh, it's been a while ago. God, that's hot. <laughs> Stay here. Blunder. This is ridiculous. This is just a mean joke. This isn't part it will of the look movie good. at all. So, you know, it was a very interesting experience, and I cannot remember for the life of me what you asked me. <laughs> so that is the end of this tribute to Attack of the Clones on the actual anniversary of this movie. It's been a blast. It's been great watching some of these videos. Uh, please go and check out all of our social media. We've got so much going on. All the main ones, just go and type in Generation Skywalker. You will find us. Join in our conversation that we are Generation Skywalker on Facebook. Please go and check out the Enhanced. The Enhanced version of this will be a treat. And playing us out differently tonight, not our usual outro theme, but Samuel Kim Music, who does provide the back music for our intro and outro. He did Across the Stars in a medieval style. And I think it's worth hearing. We are Generation Skywalker. All eras, all passions, all Star Wars. Mm-hmm.